The following lecture was delivered at the 13th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island, a project of the Roar Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi David Aaron will now present his lecture, Living on Purpose, Celebrating the Service-Driven Life. Let's get a little energy. Boker Tov. You need a microphone. Okay. Shalom, shalom. Thank you for uh, coming. So I remember the first time I heard the voice of God. I think it might have been the first time you heard the voice of God. Also was when we saw the Ten Commandments. Remember seeing that movie, The Ten Commandments? Well, the first time I ever heard the voice of God. And only later in my life did I realize what an impact that had. Because um, what chutzpah, you know what chutzpah is, it's a perfume. Right? What, 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 what gall it is that someone would determine the voice of God. So I began to think about the auditions, you know, for the voice of God. You know, this is a pretty big part. And uh, imagine at the auditions, uh, first person that shows up is a woman. Right? And the director looks to the producer and says, oh, what are we going to say? And we say, listen, we're sorry, uh, ma'am, but, but this is a God voice. And she, you know, she walks out and she says, okay, she had a man's voice, but whatever. Uh, then in walks another actor aspiring to have the God voice part. And they give him the Ten Commandments. And he begins to read, I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. And he goes, oh my gosh, that's Mickey Mouse. Send him to Disney. We're looking for a God voice. And then in comes a actor and, and reads the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. Now that's a God voice, right? I mean, everybody knows that God is from England, first of all. Uh, clearly, you know, and, and a booming, oppressive kind of voice. What is the God voice? What, what does it mean to live a service-driven life? We celebrate living in service, you know. The other day I was walking just down on the street and I saw a, a, one of the buses. On, on, on it it said, not in service. So what a miserable bus, right? A bus not in service. I don't ever want to not be in service. So I want to talk about the purpose-driven life, right? And I'm going to base this very much on sources, right? A specific source. So you definitely, definitely need this source. This is a piece written by Rabbi Abram Isaac Cook. Rabbi Abram Isaac Cook lived from 1865 to 1935. And his writings have, um, are, are, are essential in my mind uh, because he's, he's really dealing with much of the issues that are coming up in the, um, in the beginning of the 20th century which is unique to our generation. So it's, it's unusual to be able to get the writings of a rabbi that kind of addresses what's really uniquely happening and challenging us in our generation. Now, Rabbi Abraham Cook was extremely influenced by the teachings of Chabad. First of all, his mother was from Chabad. His mother was Chabad. And uh, it is known that on his desk were many of the essential teachings of Chabad Hasidut. And Rav Cook actually refers to the Chassidut of Chabad as the Chassidut Achadasha HaTvuna, the new Hasidic, sophisticated intellectual approach. Okay, 
So, um, so this is a piece from Rev Cook. It's translated. And uh, we're going to go through it. I'm going to, I love, love questions. Because um, that's when I uh, find it even more interesting for me. Because I know what I'm going to say, but I don't know what you're going to say. And then I don't know what I'm going to say when you say what I didn't know what you were going to say. So, um, so that really makes it interesting for me. So let's look at this piece. It starts off like this. Because this is the question we're going to struggle with. And I think this is, I think this is the biggest issue. You know, what I like to do is focus on basics. Because I think the basics are the most profound, the most essential, and sadly the most neglected in a lot of Jewish educational uh, formats. And so, you know, uh, the first talk I gave at this conference was the meaning of the word Baruch. And then the second class, uh, I gave a talk on the meaning of holy, kadosh. Today I want to talk about what does it mean to serve God? Why would anybody want to serve God? How are you going to inspire all these people that we're losing daily? And it's because nobody wants to be a slave. That's so not, you know, what anybody's looking to be is to be a servant, a slave of God, you know? And, and so what does it actually mean to serve? So let's read this together, okay? The concept of serving God, when it is defined in lowly terms, corresponding to a person's limited understanding of what he means by God, it is the service of a slave. It rises in stature to the same extent as his understanding of God will rise. What is Riff Cook saying? If you have a childish understanding of God, then that will translate into a childish understanding of what it means to serve God, and you will think it means that God wants you to be his slave. And nobody wants to be a slave, right? And yet Judaism says and teaches that Judaism is the secret to ultimate freedom. And yet it talks about, you know, to be an Eved Hashem, to be a servant, or the Eved, the word Eved could be, to be a slave of God. What could that possibly mean? You know, and this is one of the challenges. You know, I actually I don't know how I got to this, but last night I happened upon a um, an article about Woody Allen. You know, and it's amazing because it, this is exactly what I wanted to talk about, and this just came up. Uh, Woody Allen is talking about his Jewish background. He grew up in a Jewish home. Now, he's not married to a Jewish woman. It doesn't sound like it because uh, she has an Asian name. Uh, he's an agnostic, she's an atheist, and they're struggling what religions they should bring up their children, he says. Right? But in the meantime, he grew up Jewish. And this is exactly what he says. Right? He says, it was a joyless, unpleasant, stupid, barbaric thing. Living, growing up as Jewish. When I was a child. And I've never gotten over that feeling. And that's really sad. And I, you know what's really sad? I know a lot more people that are saying that kind of a thing. Because they have this childish understanding of God. And if you have a childish understanding of God, then everything in Judaism is going to be translated based on that childish, unsophisticated, juvenile understanding of God. So I had a very interesting encounter with the actor Kirk Douglas. Maybe some of you remember Kirk Douglas. He's alive and well and 102. Right? I like people that are 102. Right. Makes you feel like a kid. You know, I love hanging out with, you know, to, ha, I'm a kid. Right. So uh, it's a longer story. But Kirk Douglas came to our home for Friday night dinner. He actually writes about that uh, in an article that was featured in Chicken Soup for the Jewish Soul. 
And he always about that first Shabbat he had at our home in the old city of Jerusalem. It was kind of a funny situation because he, of course, sees himself as an actor. We don't have a television in our home. And our kids never heard of him. And when he walked in, he kind of, I think, expected my kids to think he was an actor. And he turned to my son, who was five years or six years old, and he says, Come sit in Kirk's lap. And my kid looked at him and ran away from him. <laughs> you know, And he loved that. Like, here, nobody knows who I am in this house. right? And so um, it's a longer story, but... I took Kirk to the, uh, the roof of Israelite Yeshiva Araita, which is my uh, center in the old city of Jerusalem, with this incredible, spectacular view overlooking the Western Wall and Temple Mount. And at that point, we hadn't really talked much. I picked him up at the hotel. We were in the taxi, brought him over there right before Shabbat. And we had no real exchange of discussion. We're going to spend the whole night at my home. Whatever, and uh, so we're at the top of this roof, and I'm going to give him a little introduction, Shabbat, Jerusalem, whatever. And there's this quiet moment, and Kirk turns to me, and he starts to sing, I couldn't believe it. Kirk Douglas is singing the beginning of Kabbalah Shabbat, the receiving of the Shabbat. I was shocked. I looked at him and said, I said, how do you know that? He says, I'm, a, I'm an actor. I know my lines. You know? That's what he said. Right? He said, but I want you to know, Rabbi, I, I grew up in an Orthodox home. Um, in fact... The community wanted me to be a rabbi. My mother would make challahs, right? Friday night, she'd tell me that angels would dance when people make challahs. My mother was illiterate. She couldn't read Hebrew. She would sit there Friday night and just hold the Torah in her hands, a Bible in her hands. She couldn't read it. But that's what I have imprinted in my mind. And yet Judaism is all form, no content. That's what he said. Judaism is, no, is all form, no content. So I said, Kirk, let me ask you a question. Imagine you were to base your budget today on your understanding of money as a child. How would you be spending your money? He said, I would be wasting it on junk. I said, yeah. I said, Kirk, imagine if you were to base your diet today on your understanding of food as a child. What would you be eating today? He said, I would be eating junk. I said, so Kirk, imagine you to base your Jewish identity today on your standing of being a Jew as a child. What would it be? He said, okay, checkmate, rabbi. Right? Are you telling me to grow up? Right? At the time, he was only 78 years old when I met him at the time. And I said, no, I'm not saying you should grow up. I'm just saying that as we grow up, then our understanding of our, of our tradition needs to grow with us. And if the word God and the meaning of that word is the same for you now, as it was when you were five years old, something doesn't make sense. I mean, this, I mean, I know the word love since I'm a kid, but hopefully, right, the meaning behind the word love, what it meant for me as a child, is so much deeper and so, so much more profound and sophisticated now that I'm much older. And I said, we all have to just grow up with our own tradition, and this is what I'm experiencing as an educator for many, many years, that a lot of Jews are stuck in a childish understanding of God. And this is what Rav Cook is saying. That if you have this childish, unsophisticated understanding of God, then anything, everything in Judaism will just translate around that, and, and you're going to think that it's about being some slave. Right? So let's go on a little bit more. Because what is this non-childish understanding of God? So he goes on. 
He says, if a person, number two, if a person should reach a state where his moral and intellectual powers have been duly developed in accordance with his potentialities and the cultural climate of his time, yet his understanding of God remains on a low plane, then there will necessarily emerge into him a fierce opposition to the whole idea of serving God. This is the challenge of Judaism today. The challenge is that too many Jews think they know what Judaism is. It'd be better that they just know they don't know what Judaism is. Right? But a lot of them think they do, just like Woody Allen. It's just, you know, he never got over the feeling. It's stupid. It's barbaric. Right? Rav Cook actually said in the early 1900s that we are going to witness one of the greatest falls away from Jewish identity ever. Right? And he said that this fall would be unprecedented, not only in the number of Jews we will lose, but the motivation. He said, because in the early days, it's not like Jews didn't walk away from their tradition. There were Jews that did. But it was because Judaism was too high a standard to live up to. It was too hard for them, right? It was too hard for them. He said, but what we're going to witness in this generation, he said this in the early 1900s, is Jews are going to leave by the thousands, not because they think Judaism is too, hostile, too high a standard to live up to, but too low a standard to stoop down to. They will believe that they are more spiritually sophisticated than what Judaism offers. They will believe that they are more moral than Judaism. And I recently met one of the leaders of the Jewish community here in the United States, and he said this exact same thing. One of the things that has never really happened before, right, is that today there are people that think that Judaism is immoral, right? And society is moral, and we are the immoral ones. And this is what Rav Cook is saying here also, that we're stuck in some childish confusion, misconception of our own tradition. So let's look at number three. The only remedy to overcome this is to elevate his concept of God through deep feeling and comprehensive understanding of ever-increasing scope, at least paralleling his other perceptions of the great and the divine. As it says, when I evoke Invoke the name of the Lord, declare you the greatness of God. If when we say God, that doesn't inspire people to greatness. They don't identify God with greatness, but with pettiness. They think, you know, when I do talks at, at schools and I ask the kids, you know, um, well, you know, any question you want to ask me, a common question is, why does God want us to praise him so much? Like, what's this deal? Why are so egotistical? He needs us to say hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Right? And it's incredibly sad that, they, that these are the kinds of questions, because that's also obviously, of course God doesn't need us to be praising God. Right? But a lot of people have this childish understanding of God. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche has this very strong uh, point that he makes. He says there's two types of people in the world. The strong people and there are weak people. The strong people do what they want, when they want, where they want. The weak people, they're weak, right? But the weak people, they're smart. And what the weak people did in order to protect themselves from the strong people is they invented morality. And who are those weak people that invented morality to make all the strong people feel guilty that they're so strong? It's the Jews. The Jews have, right, we have the copyright, the patent on guilt, right? And that's what people think. This is just about guilt. I thought it was about guilt growing up. I thought Judaism was a guilt trip, not a spiritual journey. Just a guilt trip. 
And so Cook says, when the people hear the word God, it should inspire them to feel greatness. Right? Rather, today, God is like that. In fact, when, I book came, when my first book came out, Endless Light, another book came out, which did much better than my book, called God is Not Great. Right? And actually, the cover, I remember it so, so distinctly, because the cover was God's small letter, is bigger, not even bigger, great, was the biggest word on the page. And, uh, yeah, right? That's, that's a sad thing. I, I wrote another book that came out called The Secret Life of God. And that year, another book came out called The Secret Life of Bees. Well, guess which book did much better, right? Because God, uh, bees, now that's amazing. Wow, they're, they're really fascinating, bees. But God, uh, right? So if Cook is saying, when we declare, when you say the word of God, people should associate that with incredible greatness. Why isn't that happening? So let's go on. Number four. As long as the concept of serving God is defined as a service directed to a particular being, dissociated from the acknowledgement of the ideals, which are an integral part of the very essence of the service, it will not free itself from the immature outlook, which is always focused on particular beings. This is a big shift. I talked about this a little bit yesterday. I want to fully elaborate on it today. For those of you who weren't yesterday, that's fine. I forgive you. But other than that, right? But what is a particular being? See, most of us think that God is a particular being. I'm a particular being. He's a particular being. He happens to be particularly great. I'm particularly not so great. He's, infin- he's infinite. I'm infinitesimal. He's all-knowing. I'm all-stupid. He's all-perfect. I'm all-imperfect. I don't want to hang around beings like that. And then that being tells me, serve me, praise me, do my will. Right? It's a particular being. And you know who got us to believe this? The snake in the Garden of Eden. The snake in the Garden of Eden said to Adam and Eve, you know why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree? Because he knows that the day that you'll eat from that tree, you too will be gods. You'll decide what's good. You'll decide what's bad. You'll decide for yourself. You won't be a slave. You won't be subordinate. This is his way. Commandments is his way of controlling you, of subordinating you. Right? This is a competition. Don't fool yourself. The only way you can keep yourself as a king is to get you to keep his commandments. Right? And when Adam and Eve bought into that, there was a shift. We started to think of God as a particular being. And I'm a particular being. And I have to give up what I want to do what he wants. Because what does he want? He wants slaves. He wants subjects. He wants control. It's all about his ego. And we're still suffering this immature understanding, misunderstanding of God as some particular being. So if Cook is going to take us to a whole new level, if it's about a particular being, this is a form of idolatry. Because idolatry was there's an object, there's a being over there, right? Whether it's a tree or a statue. And I got to bow to that being. I give up myself for that being. So look what Rev. Cook says. He says, going back over four, as long as the concept of serving God is defined as a service direct to particularly dissociated from the acknowledgement of the ideals, which integral part of the very essence of the service, it will not free itself from the immature outlook. What was he talking about? Let's read the next piece, number five. 
The mature outlook calls for the formulation of divine ideals, to refine them, to try and strengthen them, to actualize them in the life of the individual, the nation, and the world. What is Rav Cook saying? Does it mean to serve God? The only thing we know about God is the divine attributes. That's all we know about God. One of those divine attributes. The divine attributes is freedom, wisdom, understanding, kindness, compassion, justice, truth, peace. So what does it mean to serve God? It means to serve, to bring those attributes into the world. Is there anybody in this world that doesn't really want to do that? That's a good person? You see, we, we think of God as a particular being who has a certain fetish. You know, everything fun is forbidden, and this is his way to control us. Right? But that's not what God means to us. Right? So this is what I do with my students. I do the love God test. Okay? And let's do that little test. How many of you here love wisdom? Put up your hand. Okay, obviously you are. You're at JLI. Right? How many of you here love truth? Put up your hand. Okay. How many of you love kindness, compassion, peace? Well, guess what? You love God because that's what God means to us, right? Because all we know about God is the attributes of God and how God manifests to us. So if a person says they love truth, they love peace, then in our books, that's what it means to love God. Oh, no, I don't believe in God. You know what? Don't believe in God. Just love truth, compassion, live and serve and bring goodness to the world. We'll deal with the God stuff after because that's what it really means to serve God. How about fearing God? Nobody likes to fear God. I don't want to live in fear. That is so not in fashion to live in fear. Right? Well, how many of you fear losing love in your life? How many feel? You don't want to lose love in your life. How many fear losing a connection with truth in your life? Losing a connection with peace in your life. Well, that's what it means to fear God. Because the only thing we know about God is the divine attributes as God is manifest and revealed to us relative to our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. So now, what does that really mean? What it really means is that to serve God means to serve good. To serve good. And that's who God is. Kitov Hashem. Because God is good. We actually say in our praise, Hatov Shimcha. Your name is the good. That's your name. You're the good. That's why God's called God. Who do you think God is? The personification of good. I'm not saying, I don't want to depersonify God. I'm not saying that. Right? What we're saying is that when we say Hashem, we are talking about good almighty. And to serve God means to serve to bring divine ideals and values into this world. Very often people think that the goal of Judaism is to spiritualize the material. Actually, it's the opposite. The goal of Judaism is to materialize the spiritual. Take love, which is abstract, turn it into a hug. Take kindness, which is an abstract quality, Turning it to the act of you moving your hands into your pocket and handing somebody money. It's taking the abstract and making that concrete in the world. 
That is the principle of mitave kadosh baruch hu lasot yiratov betachtonim. Hakadosh baruch hu wants to be in this world, and it's all about this world being. What does it mean? God wants to be in this world. It's synonymous with saying good wants to be in this world because all we know about God are the good attributes that are manifest by virtue of a God's relationship to us, and that's what it means to serve God. Is to serve good. And so if a person says that I want good to lead my life, and I want my life to be dedicated to the good, and every facet of good is what my life is about, and I want good to be my king, well, that's what we mean when we say God, because God is the epitome of all goodness, the source of all good, the manifestation of all good. So, you know, often people say, well, isn't it good enough to be a good person? Like, why do I need to light the Shabbat candles, or why do I need to eat kosher, or why? All those, you know, laws between man and God stuff, I don't know. But, you know, those rituals. Uh, you know, the, God, the, 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 the commandments between the humans and the humans, I can, okay, I, I'm, I'm okay with that one, because I want to be good. And that's the mistake. The mistake is that we don't understand what it really means to be good. Because good is no less precise than a science. Good is a science. See, most people think that good is, I'm a nice person. Often if you ask a person, are you good? They say, yeah, I never hurt anybody. Well, first of all, that's not good. That's just not bad, you know. But good, people think good means I give charity and that's really great. Right? Good means I say a kind word, you know, to the postman and that's absolutely beautiful, beautiful. But, but would it be appropriate for a doctor Right? A neurosurgeon, right? In a hospital, say, I'm a good surgeon. I smile at my patients. Right? In fact, this patient came in the other day with a stroke. I, I, I gave him a nice word. I said, you'll be okay. You know? Right? Well, doc, are you going to perform surgery? Hey, I'm a, I'm a good person. Right? I mean, there's a science here. Why do people think that good and bringing good to the world is any less precise than any other science of bringing beauty in the world and music in the world or architecture in the world or health in the world? Health is so specific. We believe that we're healing the world because health is to bring wholeness and goodness. And that is what it means to live a service-driven life. A service, this is the purpose of our lives. You know, the purpose of our life, we all want to have a good life. There's nobody in this room that doesn't want to have a good life. And the secret to a good life is to do good. But think, people think to do good is really simple. You know, you just be nice. Well, that's really good, and nobody wants to diminish that. That's really good. But goodness is very specific. And Judaism is claiming that when we celebrate Shabbat, we are channeling the presence of good Almighty to the world. Right? And that when we do our prayers, we're channeling good Almighty into the world. And every single detail of Jewish law is a precise technology of engineering our lives to channel the presence of God in the world, which what that means for us it is not to channel the presence of a particular being who lives in heaven that's going to somehow make it down to earth and that God will be one of us on a bus, right? 
To channel the presence of God Almighty in the world is to bring love into the world and peace into the world and kindness to the world and truth into the world because this is all we know about God. These are the attributes of God. And for us, that is who God is, even though God is even greater than all those attributes. But God is manifest through those attributes. So let's read on a little bit more. And again, I love your questions. And uh, we're going to have time very soon for those questions. All right, let's look at number six. It is indeed well known according to a deeper understanding of the Torah. Even the names of God do not designate the essence of the divine, but rather the divine ideas or ideals, the ways of God, his will, the divine emanation, the sefirot, the attributes. In other words, the name yud Hey vav Hey, which I talked about yesterday, correlates to the attribute of unconditional love, rachamim, right? So I mentioned yesterday there's a fellow, a guy named uh, Oslander, who wrote a book called Beware of God. You can imagine what that book is about. And he's a very, um, a, a very vocal, proud atheist. And he very much, his, his mission is to get people to, to, to realize, you know, the problem of God. And so he points out that if you were to take the Torah and put it into a Word document and replace the word God with Jerry, and then write a report about what you think about Jerry. And then I think that if you read the book, and instead of God it said Jerry, you would think that Jerry is a jerk, right? But why don't you think that when it says God? Because you're scared, right? But, but really, if you were honest, you would really be put off by God if you were to read the Bible. Well, where's the flaw in his thinking? The flaw is it doesn't say God. It says Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey. And what does that word for us mean? Unconditional love. So what if every time you saw that name of the divine and you put love, love commanded, love judged, love brought this upon the world, then that would at least make you pause and think, okay, what did that mean? What did that mean? But that's what it means in our tradition. What it means to serve God is to serve to bring rachamim into the world. And every divine name is not designating a particular being, but it's saying something about the divine attributes that God is manifest through. And therefore, serving God means for us serving to make godly attributes in this world. Look at number seven. To some extent, the substantive content of these ideals is also written in man's nature. For God has made him upright. The mightiest desire embedded deeply in man is to translate this hidden light from the realm of potentiality to action, to bring that unlimited perfection of the divine ideals ever closer into the structure of life itself, of the person, of society, in the realm of action, will, and thought. What Ruf Cook is saying, and these ideals are embedded in you. You want to love. Because you're creating the image of God, and if you're creating the image of God, then within you, is the character of lovingness. Within you is the character of truthfulness, of caring, of kindness. And therefore, if Cook is telling us, what does it really mean to serve God? It is not something that's disempowering. It's not a put-down of you giving up yourself for some being over there that's his, a tyrant telling you what to do. It's self-actualization. To serve God is to serve to not only bring godly attributes into the world, but to activate the godly attributes within you already. You already have this godliness within you. And therefore, Judaism is basically asking us 
to be ourselves. But our real selves, our higher selves, you know. And a lot of people think that Judaism is taking me away from myself. I've got to be true to myself. That's a very big thing today. Be yourself. Right? And Judaism would agree to that, but don't agree with what your definition of your true self is. Are you so sure you know what your true self is? You know, one metaphor I always use is imagine when we were children, we probably all had this experience where our mother came up to or our father came up to us with this little red plastic potty and said, you know, that life is changing and diapers are no longer in and you're going to do your thing in this potty. Now, probably as children, we looked at our parents and thought, whoa. Wow, you are a control freak. <laughs> you are. You're crazy. I look, I don't know what you guys do in that closet. I don't know. I don't want to know. I'm a happy, spontaneous kid. I do it where I want, when I want. You know, it's like, you know, like, you know, lay off. Right. And the parents say, well, I'll tell you what. We'll create a reward and punishment, you know, uh, motivation. If you do it in the potty, we'll give you a piece of chocolate. If you don't do in the potty, you won't get that piece of chocolate. Okay, now we're doing business, but two pieces of chocolate. Okay, fine, it's a deal. Right? So we feel that we're doing it because there's some reward, but we have to give up ourselves. We have to forfeit our natural, spontaneous, real self. But okay, a deal is a deal. Right? There is surely nobody here waiting for a piece of chocolate when they walk out of the bathroom, although by the reception, there are. <laughs> pieces of chocolate if you miss that motivation but basically basically what happened we realized that what our parents were asking us to do was what we would absolutely want to do if we were in touch with our true self and that is what Judaism is asking serving God is in a certain way self-serving right it's not a put down it's not a control thing it's not some upmanship over here. I'm bigger, better, stronger than you. And God needs these little creatures groveling and begging him all the time. That is not at all what Judaism is about. Judaism is about bring God to the world. And to bring God to the world is not to bring some particular being. Right? But to bring the attributes of God to the world. Because that's all we know about God. And that's to bring freedom, wisdom, understanding, real connection, real kindness, real justice, honesty, integrity, beauty, glory, peace. And the power to choose to do good. That's what it's about. Let's finish off and then I want to hear your questions. Number eight. This is the enlightened service of God. This ideal concept, this ideal concept will always broaden the spirit and elevate it, while the concept of the slave-like service, which involves service to a particular being detached from the ideals or the attributes, can fall to the level of idolatry. It narrows the spirit and lowers it. As I mentioned, idolatry is there's a particular being, and I have to give up myself to make that being happy. Right? And that's my, that was my relationship with God. It was all about bargaining and begging and making deals with God. Right? But Judaism isn't about God as some object over there, not a particular being. But rather, the Zohar says that God is the soul of our souls. 
And the Baal Tanya says that's really only our bodies that are confusing us to think that we're all separate, independent, disconnected beings when we all in this room share one soul. And who is the soul of our soul? God. And to serve God is to serve to bring that one soul that unites us all and inspires us to do good for each other, to love each other, respect each other. If you want to feel good, you do good. And the concept of avodat Hashem, the concept of serving God, is really serving good Almighty. And when you praise God, you are praising goodness. And when you pray to God, you're saying, God, you are good Almighty. Guide me how to serve to bring good into this moment, into this challenge, so that I can bring in this world, I can materialize the spiritual and bring the abstract of goodness and kindness and love and make it concrete. Thank you very much. And uh, I'd like to hear your questions. The question here is, you know, the idea of the, the child and the, orienta- the orientation of the child. We have to stand in our tradition, schar mitzvah mitzvah. The reward of a commandment is the commandment, right? Is the commandment. In other words, what is the reward for loving somebody? It is the joy of loving somebody. And if you're looking for some reward for loving somebody, that's not love, that's business. Not that business is bad, but business isn't love. When you do an act of kindness, and you're hoping to be rewarded for that kindness, and don't realize that the act of kindness itself is the greatest reward, because what's the greatest reward? What's more rewarding than being my true self, actualizing my potential? Right? In my deepest of depths, I'm a good person, and when I live that goodness, then I feel good about myself, and I help others feel good about themselves. What other reward would I be looking for? So, too, for the child to live a more higher standard of hygiene, right, saying, well, what's my payoff? What's your payoff? Your payoff is you're living a more, a more sophisticated life, something that's more on part of who you really are, okay? And that is what Judaism is claiming, and that is what I've experienced in my life as a Jew. That Judaism is enabling us to be our higher, greater selves, and there's no greater reward than that. Right. And when we and even when we raise our children, thank you, when we raise our children, we have to be very, very careful. You know, I mean, when I was dating, I had these little games to figure out who the woman was. so I wouldn't have to spend too much time if this is not my soulmate. And so I would ask my date, you know, give me an image of a day in your perfect life, family life. So this girl said to me, well, you know, what comes to my mind, a, a perfect day of my family life is the refrigerator. And on the refrigerator is a mitzvah chart. And every time the children do a mitzvah, they get a star. And after ten stars, they get a squirt gun. And that was the image that came to her mind of a great day of her home. She sensed that I wasn't particularly, you know, inspired by that image. That's okay, right? And she turned to me and said, okay, well, what comes to your mind when you think of your home? And I said, what comes to my mind is just light. I want my home to be filled with light. And she said, you know, that'll run you a high electrical bill. I said, yeah, good night. <laughs> you know, but what is the light? It, Torah is about enlightenment. It really is enlightenment. An enlightened person is a person that's living up to who they are. And Judaism is giving us a path that serving God 
isn't, isn't diminishing. It's actually expanding. It's empowering. Because to serve God means to serve good, actualize my potential, and be a channel for God's goodness into the world. And there's no greater reward than that. Right. And that is what I experienced. You know, when I began my journey back to Judaism, that was the amazing thing. I found myself feeling more happier with myself, more in touch with myself. My friends thought that, you know, oh, maybe he'll look really weird and strange. But I anyways looked weird and strange. But, but, but the truth was, I felt it came home. I felt just being in service is, is the greatest thing. You know, it's like if we were to talk to the lamps in this room and we'd say, well, what makes you happy? They would say when we can illuminate, when we can be ourselves and serve electricity and bring light into the world. There's no greater joy than being in service. In service of what? Bring goodness to the world. And that is the essence of a Jewish life. To serve God is to serve good almighty. Please visit MyJLI.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and TorahCafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.